Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. The last time we saw the power of God working mightily in the lives of the disciples. And we saw that in the healing of the lame beggar. And subsequently, we also saw that in Peter's subsequent speech. Today we're going to see a little persecution is thrown into the mix. And how these men of God respond to it. And hopefully we can draw a parallel as to what's happening today and how we would respond if some of that persecution was to befall us. So in chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they lay hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, in context, if you weren't here last Sunday, this is happening right after this amazing healing of this lame man who's also a beggar. Remember, we spoke a few Sundays back about the Holy Spirit, how Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come upon you in the different ways we're sealed, the epi in the Greek, how the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And I want to use that again because we see that in verse 1. We see the epi is coming upon these men again, but in a different way. The epi is part of epestesan, which is basically a Greek elision. All that means is that the epi is part of another word. The eye drops off and you get an epsilon. But a long story short, I'm trying to build a case here. There's, there's a coming upon these men of God. But the word here now implies more of a coming upon by an assault in this instance. In verse 1, we have the appee, except now it's Satan trying to undo what God already started. And he's using religious men to do it, which is not uncommon. Suffice it to say that Satan is the master of undoing. He tries to take his turn with us after God does a work. And we've seen that all throughout the scripture. If you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve, they had a relationship with God. It's Adam and Eve and God, his new creation. He develops this great relationship, this bond with them. What happens? Satan comes and he tries to attack that relationship. He tries to undo what God did. And he was successful in that instance because sin entered the world and death entered the world. We also see another instance. And we see this all throughout the scripture. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He defeats 400 prophets on the top of Mount Carmel. He's victorious. And then he gets word that Queen Jezebel is going to kill him. And he flees. He's terrified. He runs away. So Satan tries to undo the victory that God's man achieved. And he does that partially. Elijah ends up coming back. And then we also see Jesus, right? He's baptized. The heavens open. God speaks. He's pleased with his son. The Holy Spirit alights on Jesus. Everything's going great. And then he goes into the wilderness, and Satan tries to take his legs out from under him to try to undo his ministry before it even gets off the ground. Except in this instance, Satan was not able to do that. And then we have this. Peter and John, this great witness, this great healing. Satan is trying to destroy it using these religious men to put them in prison and silence them. Guess what? You, me, he does the same thing. Whenever we have those mountaintop experiences with the Lord, Satan tries to come in and undo what God started and developed in us. That's just his M.O. Resistance and persecution of God's people often accompanies great works of God. 
Just ask Christians in persecuted countries. Just ask Christians who come back from countries where there's hostility and pick their brains a little bit. Sit down with them for a few minutes and ask them what life is like in those countries. Anytime you give glory to God in the form of these great proxies or acts, which is what this book is named after, you better start praying for strength because the undoing is on its way. Satan will attempt discomfiture. I, I think of when oftentimes as a, as a newer Christian, I would go to a men's retreat and I would be there and there'd be worship and I'd get these great teachings and I'd come home. And it wasn't long after I got home where my wife and I started to argue about stupid stuff until I realized it's Satan's M.O. And then you, you realize that when you and the Lord are doing something together, be in prayer because he's going to try to get in there either through you or other people and try to destroy what God has started in you. Could be a teaching, could be a serving, and, and, and Satan's going to try to get in there. The only way to avoid it is this. Here's your only way to avoid this. To become worldly, to become a self-centered Christian, and pose no threat to Satan's kingdom. And I guarantee you, he'll leave you alone, because you're not a threat to him. But that's not what we strive for. It's actually counterproductive from what we've learned. Some historical facts. You see... These people, the Sadducees, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees come upon them. The Sadducees were a religious group that were in charge of the priesthood at the time. They denied the resurrection. They denied spiritual things. They became very worldly religious leaders. They wanted to play nice with Rome, and they liked their power base. Okay? I'm going to read verse 4 again. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. However, many that heard the word believed. So what you see is, this is what God did with these men. And this is what Satan tried to do with these men. And, but God also did this. And those are the best words in the Bible. But God. No matter how bad things get, but God. Let God come in there and save the day, because he often does. And you know what it reminds me of? Kind of like if you ever, if you're familiar with court testimony, ever watch court TV or in, any of you in the jurisprudence system. And what you have is you have your witness comes up and he takes the stand. He sits down, puts his hand on the Bible, you know, the oath. And then the friendly attorney comes up to him and says to him, hey, what did you see? And he, he tries to get he tries to get testimony out of this witness to show the jury and the judge that this is a credible witness, Right. It's kind of what, what God does here. You know, he's the friendly attorney. He's, he's getting the best. He brings the best out of you. And then the friendly attorney sits down. And then the unfriendly attorney gets up, and he does cross-examination, tries to confuse you, obfuscate the issue, trying to get you to the point where your credible, credibility doesn't look very good to, the, to the, uh, the jury and the judge. And that's what Satan does. And then the third thing that happens is redirect. What happens is God, or I'm sorry, the friendly attorney comes up again and he, he makes the confusing part of the testimony from the unfriendly attorney. He tries to make sense out of it. So your, your credibility is brought back again. And that's what God is doing here. He's redirecting. Even though these two men, these two men of God are put in prison by religious men, God is redirecting and he's saying, look, 5,000 people got saved today. 5,000 men. Now, 5,000 men could have included, with women and children, well over 10,000 people that received the Lord that day. Talk about a revival meeting. Verse 5. 
And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In perspective, verses 5 and 6, you see all these people coming around Peter and John and interrogating them. What you had is your council or your Sanhedrin. It was 70 members, mostly Sadducees, priests, different people in that uh, governing body, and then the, the, the tiebreaker would usually be cast by the high priest. But this council or Sanhedrin had broad powers. They had spiritual powers. They had judicial powers. They had legislative powers. And they also had police powers. If it was corrupt, the fix was in for you. You know, you, you, you were in trouble. Similar to us, and you know, I like to always, when I go through the Bible, put interject us into the situation that these people, these men of God are going through. It would be similar in our situation today by you being sat down by the Chief Justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court, the New Jersey State Police Superintendent, some senators, and the official state religious leaders, and they're all against you, and they're interrogating you. It could be quite intimidating if you think about it. And as we saw in verse 3, Peter and John were put in jail for the night to teach them a lesson. So it was already evening. They were put in custody until the next morning. So these guys were jailed. Probably thought, let them think about what they did. Let them change their minds. This is a common occurrence. It's not common for us because we enjoy freedoms in this country, but it's a common occurrence, especially for the persecuted church. You go overseas to some of these other countries and talk to some of these missionaries. Pastors are put in jail all the time for preaching the word of God. I remember uh, Richard Wormbrand, who's since gone to be with the Lord. He uh, was in a Romanian prison for many years, solitary confinement, was beat up. He was a, a pastor overseas. And he actually testified before Congress and showed them his scars, whippings, beatings. I mean, this, this man's body literally bore the testimony of Jesus Christ because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. So he went through a lot. The disciples went through a lot. The question is, how would we hold up? What if it happened today? What if they came in and told us what we had to preach from the pulpit? You know, a lot of people would probably leave the Bible-believing churches and go somewhere safe and maybe worship at home or not at all go with the flow so it's a good question that we could ask ourselves looking at this situation but let's see peter and james or peter and john's response to this you know they're they're intimidated they're thrown in prison and what did they say they went to these men and said i'm sorry i'm sorry i promise i won't do it again what, what bible are you reading if that's what you're thinking not quite they come out swinging peter's still beating the drum you guys killed the messiah and the question is, or the point is, considering who he's talking to, that's pretty brave of Peter. 
What's important to note is the Bible says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, why is that important? Because think about this. In front of men of lesser importance, Peter fled and ran away. And now you've got a different person here, don't we? Who is this brave Jewish man standing up to the leaders and rulers? It's a changed Peter by the power of the Holy Spirit. Change. We spoke a little bit about change last Sunday. Change is something our flesh hates. And the question is why? Well, change is the antithesis of our comfortable routines in life. The more ritualistic you are and OCD you are, like me, I like my rituals, right? I, like, I have a routine every day. The more you're like that, the more you hate change. And the older we get, the more we hate change. It's true. You've heard you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, it's true for a dog. I mean, your puppies are great. You could teach them anything, right? If you have an old dog and you try to teach them new tricks, it really is true. They don't, they don't want to do anything. Now, I'm not a dog person. We have five cats, and all our cats want to do, especially as they get older, they eat, they sleep, and they make me change their litter box, you know? But you can't teach an old dog new tricks. However, through the Holy Spirit, an old dog can learn new tricks. How many old dogs want to learn new tricks? Well, not this old dog in my flesh. But change is good. And the Holy Spirit helps us to move on a continuum. It's like a timeline. And we always want to be moving in a certain direction. Yes, sometimes we take a step or two back. But we always want to go towards a direction where we're being transformed into the image of Christ. Change is good. Don't fight it. Verse 11. Peter says, speaking of, of Jesus, he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now, let's turn to Psalm 18. I'm sorry, Psalm 118. Psalm 118, starting with verse 22. This superscription over this psalm is better to trust God than man. And it was understood, at least in part, as messianic. Starting with verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The builders being the religious leaders at the time, and the stone being Christ. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, whenever the rock was spoken of, it was spoken of meaning deity, meaning God. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So now we see that the Lord, uh, indicating that it was God himself, the Father, was, was pleased with this rejection of the stone. 24, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This, again, we see this in the Gospels. This is a picture of the triumphal entry where Jesus comes and presents himself as Messiah the King. Verse 25, save now, or Hosanna, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. They thought it was going to come in the form of a physical rule, but it came in the form of spiritual revival. Verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. There's a few things that are going on, two opposite themes at the same time. You have the Messiah bringing salvation. You have the rejection of the Messiah. You have God allowing it. And you also have, it says that it was good. So you have a, a few things going on here. And again, it's been quoted in the Gospels. We went through Luke. We, uh, some of the Gospels, you'll see it in there. And here Peter is using it to further show those who should have received him their own rejection. 
He actually, it was coming to pass where the builders, the religious leaders, the people who should have received the Messiah, he was showing them their rejection of him and how they fulfilled that prophecy. Verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why has this message changed in the last 2,000 years? It hasn't changed in the world. The world has always been opposed to the message of salvation. But why, I'm going to go somewhere else. Why is it, has it changed among Christendom? Why is Joel Osteen and many other evangelical leaders afraid to affirm verse 12 when pressed by Larry King and other media pundits? Now, this isn't character assassination or hype because I downloaded the transcripts from CNN. Some of these evangelical leaders, they go on, they get pressed by these pundits, and they're afraid to affirm this very thing, that there's salvation in no other. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify of me, and also the truths about him, and one of them being salvation in no other. There are just some things that are not open to negotiation, and this is one of them, salvation in no other but Jesus Christ. Now let me redirect the argument, going back to the courtroom thing here. Who's being exclusive? Is it Christians? No, it's not. We're just following what our, our Lord has told us. God is being particular about salvation. And you know what? He has the right to be. He made the creation. He made us. And he made the rules. And it's our job to follow the rules. And I have no problem with that. So if I, if I get pressed too much, I'll say, listen, I didn't write the book. God says it right here, right? But God was particular in the Old Testament regarding the sacrifices. There was no hope for Israel without the shedding of blood. Leviticus 17.11 is very clear about that. The shedding of the blood was for the remission of sins. There was no hope for Israel without that temple sacrificial system. And he carries that over into the New Testament. Okay, there's a continuum here. With his son, the sacrifice of his son. There's no hope for mankind without the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, the atonement. The Bible says the soul that sins shall die. The only atonement for these vile nature of sins is the shedding of blood. In the police field, every year we're supposed to revamp or we're supposed to get addendums to New Jersey Penal Code 2C or New Jersey Title 39 Motor Vehicle Code. And we're supposed to update them every year because laws are constantly repealed by the legislature and the judiciary and new laws are being put into the books. So you don't want to charge somebody with something that doesn't exist anymore, then you really have problems on your hands. So we're supposed to really keep abreast of all the new laws. However, God's laws have never been repealed. God's laws have never changed. Remember, when Jesus came, he says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to destroy them. God has... Why do people change? People change because they get new and better information. I may change how I do my presentation. I may change how I um, be a father to my son. Because when you get new information and it's better, you adapt, okay? You put that into your, your methodology. But God never has to change. Why? Because he never gets better information. He's perfect. He knows. That. It's hard for us to understand that. We change, and that's a good thing, but he doesn't change, the Bible says, because he already has all the information he needs. It's not like somebody could teach him something new. It's not like God could walk into a room and they could throw him a surprise party because he knows what's happening before it happens, right? <laughs> so he doesn't change. He doesn't need to, but we change. It's very hard, though, for a society, a society to accept the way of salvation where so much sin is tolerated. Don't judge me. It works for me. Don't legislate uh, morality. 
Well, some of our laws, like murder and, and theft and stuff, that's legislating morality. It comes from the scripture. This is a society, though, we live in that um, every day we see more reports of children, female college students being abducted, and, and usually they're killed at the end. This is the society we live in, and we see it. There was just one um, today or yesterday, a Wisconsin female college student. We're so used to this. We live, we're so desensitized. We live in such a perverse and twisted society. And that's why there's so much opposition to God's way, because people are so immersed and, and used to and desensitized by sin that when God says, this is the way, you need to follow this. Otherwise, you're, you're, you have no hope for yourself. People have a problem with that. You know, it's a change. It's a change for them. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Uneducated and untrained. How could this be? No Torah school, no seminary, no Bible college, no degrees. These guys didn't have any of that stuff. But the answer is they had been with Jesus. Whether it's boldness or the right words at the right time, Jesus even said to his disciples, when they haul you before courts and kings and they interrogate you and they question them, don't be afraid of what you will answer because in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need. The Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need. And the answer is always Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit always agree with each other. The early disciples had no schooling or seminary, but they were in communion with Jesus. Today, education of the clergy is king. But the love for Jesus is largely being lost in academia. And it's the same thing with us. When we've been with Jesus, people notice. It will come out. It'll come out in our example. It'll come out in our understanding of the word of God. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my wife is my best critic. <laughs> I love to ask her, hey, what do you think of the message? Because she's good. She gives me good constructive criticism. Well, this was a few months back, uh, we had come home and I asked her what she thought. She goes, well, that was a great point that you made. And, and this point was great. And I'm like, wow, it must have been a good service. But so she goes, and where'd you get those points? Chuck Smith, Lloyd Pulley. And I got offended. I'm like, no, God gave those to me. <laughs> Chuck Smith, Lloyd Pulley. Come on. <laughs> but when you're, when you're around Jesus, your life will change. You know, people will notice the difference about you. <laughs> people will say, there's something different about you. Your neighbors will see something different about you. You know, you'll, people will notice when you've been with Jesus. Verse 16 and 17. So what happens, the religious leaders confer among themselves, what are we supposed to do? Uh, this is not good for us. This is going to kill our power base. We're going to lose money. The Romans are going to say, well, I thought you had control of these people. I mean, and I'm 
certainly interjecting a few things here. But a notable miracle has happened here. What shall we do? The answer is rejoice. But what did they do? No, let's threaten them and let them go so it won't spread any further. What you have to understand is there's always going to be opposition to God's word. There's always going to be opposition to the manifestations of, of God's miracles. But you can't stop a true work of God. It's not possible. Now let's look at Peter and John's response again the second time. Okay, They spoke to them the first time. Now they're speaking to him a second time. So what did they say? Well, to the religious leaders, you've been fair with us and maybe we should compromise. Okay, we'll be quiet from now on. No, wrong again. Again, the answer is boldness to proclaim Jesus and the message of salvation. It's good to get along with people. I try to get along with people as much as I can. But there's just some things that you can't compromise on. There's some things that you're naturally going to be at odds with people. And it's going to be a spiritual thing. If God is doing a true work in the child of God, he cannot and would not want to contain it or say, I won't do that again. It goes against his spiritual nature. And it goes back to the evangelical leaders. It's sad to say, but a lot of these, these famous guys are, as long as they're, the, the seats are all filled and as long as the money's coming into the bank, they'll compromise. Because the more they tell the truth, the more people are going to be at odds with what they say and the more people are going to maybe leave or not listen to them or give them a hard time. Those men are false shepherds. If you're looking for the true shepherds, it's Jesus Christ. If you're looking for the true uh, shepherds from his example, it's Peter and John in this particular portion of Scripture. Now, I want to switch gears here. They're being silenced. They're told that there's certain things they shouldn't say. Um, I don't know if they had the amendments like we do. Our First Amendment right is the freedom of speech. Well, they're being censured here, okay? And my question is, do you think that we may never in this country, with all our religious freedoms, be in a situation where this may happen to us? Well, there are those that are well represented in our current Congress and judiciary that have an agenda about what they think is good First Amendment and what they don't think is good First Amendment. Like the Sadducees, they'll try to protect us from so-called harmful speech. And you may ask me, well, what's harmful? Well, let's look at this in a common sense approach. Maybe they should protect us, or especially our children, from pornography. Putting filters on public computers and libraries so that my seven-year-old can't log on to something by accident and have his innocence taken away, it's a good thing, right? Child Internet Protection Act was protecting children from that. Well, the answer is no. The courts have ruled that putting filters on public Internet and public property is an infringement on free speech. Now, I don't do hype, I do research. You can find this in the American Librarians Association Incorporated versus the United States. It's case law. So what do you think? Maybe our, our government should protect us from profanity? That's a good one, Joe. Well, trying to protect our children from excessive and vile profanity in the public arena, that's a good thing, right? The answer is no again. The courts have ruled that laws barring profanity is also a violation of our First Amendment rights. Now, again... People versus Boomer. It's a Michigan case. There was a campgrounds and some dopey guy in a raft and he hits a rock and he falls in the water and he's mad because he's wet. So he's cursing up a storm and apparently there was a lot of children there, families there. The authorities came, they summoned him and uh, he ended up, of course, fighting it and he won in court. Profanity is, a, is an exercise of free speech. What about burning the American flag? Nope. Courts have ruled that that's also a protection of our First Amendment rights. Go to Iran or some of these communist countries and burn their flag and see what happens to you. You won't make it back. 
What about the radical advancement of a sexual agenda, be it homosexual or heterosexual, in our grade schools? The answer is no again. Actually, many public schools have invited uh, into schools this, these agendas to force-feed our children sexuality, be it homo or hetero. There was a book that was written, a very popular book, called Heather Has Two Mommies, and you can tell by the title what they're trying to teach little kids, and it's, it's in the public schools. Now, a little note on this. When I meet you, I, the last thing I want to know is what you do in your bedroom. As a matter of fact, hopefully I never get to know what you do in your bedroom. I really don't want to know. So the whole thing about sexuality is inappropriate with adults. It should be less appropriate with children. Why are we, why are we allowing our kids to be taught this junk? My wife and I, every September, my son um, goes to public schools. He has special needs, and they really help him out. But what we do is every September we go to the open house. Out of all the parents in the classroom, we're the only two that pick up the textbooks, and we're going through the textbooks, people looking at us. I want to know what they're teaching my kid. Get involved, okay? Get involved. All right. Uh, <laughs> I get a little excited sometimes, you know? <laughs> Slow down, Joe. Sexuality comes up when people want to force you to understand what they're doing and they want to force you to accept it and it shouldn't be coming up with our children. Handing out condoms in school is praise while teaching abstinence as a 100% way to not get STDs or get pregnant is vilified. Boulder, Colorado High School recently had three guests come and speak at an assembly with the kids like this very auditorium and the kids were forced to come in and attend this assembly. And these three people proceeded to talk about uh, en engaging in uh, sexual activity, unprotected sex, and illegal drug use. And this is, this is a fact. Again, I heard the tapes. It's not hype. This is what's going on. So the pornographers, the sex peddlers, the profane, the flag burners are all protected. So what speech, you may ask me, is considered dangerous in our country today? Well, I'll tell you, prayer is dangerous. Be careful where you point that prayer. You could hurt somebody with that. There's a young man, uh, Jerry Jershina, Bayonne High School valedictorian, recent case. He, uh, you know, valedictorian comes in. He's well-respected by his peers. During graduation, he speaks from the heart. He speaks words of wisdom. He speaks from the heart. Well, the courts have ruled one thing he can't talk about is God. Can't pray. Can't do that. It's, it's pretty dangerous stuff. Second thing that's dangerous, it's not covered under free speech, the Ten Commandments. They're removing it from schools. Well, they're gone out of the schools. Now they're removing it from the old courthouses where it was engraved in the stone. They actually have blankets that were put up over these engravings with, with duct tape so people don't get offended by don't kill, <laughs> don't steal, don't lie in court, and believe in God so you could be held accountable. That's bad stuff. What else? Um, talking about God and salvation. Harmful speech. Someone could be irreversibly damaged by that harmful speech. I'm going to read you some examples. Um, these are courtesy of the Alliance Defense Fund. And they're basically, it's a Christian-based legal team that fights every day while we're going to work and doing our own thing. They fight for our freedom of speech as Christians. Another group, the Alliance Defense Fund and the American Center for Law and Justice. And I can show this stuff to you afterwards, but real case. On January 19, 2007, in Plantation Key, Florida, two of the Gideons International, which we've had them up here, not these two particular guys, but we've had the Gideons here, uh, were arrested, booked into jail, and charged for politely handing out small Gideon Bibles on a public sidewalk outside of a Key Largo school. 
even though they were breaking no laws and complying with the deputy sheriff's order to leave immediately. So you've heard of drug-free school zones. Now we have God-free school zones. Can't even be on a sidewalk. Another young man, uh, Chase Harper, Poway High School, California, wore a T-shirt that just said Day of Truth, which had a Christian meaning behind it about something that was uh, being discussed in the schools. And he was interrogated by a deputy and, and suspended and kicked out of school. But, see, a lot of these judges, when this goes up to the courts, they're upholding these things. They're saying, yeah, that's Christian stuff. We can't talk about it. Here's a, I have a map here of the, all the cases the ADF is fighting. Public universities, colleges, funded um, largely by taxpayer funds, where it's okay to talk about everything but Christian, Christianity. They have all these different groups, the communist group, the homosexual group, all these different groups, but you can't have a Christian group on these campuses, and these people are fighting. So this is what you have going on. A few Congresses back and administrations back, there was debate about making preaching the Bible a hate crime. Imagine that. God's word considered hate speech. And it goes back to what we said before. We're so, this is a society so desensitized by sin that if God says you shouldn't do that, it's going to cause you to go to hell. Um, and he's warning us in a, in a loving way, don't do that. If you've got an incurable disease, a doctor's going to say there's certain things you shouldn't do and there's certain things that you should do. But the same instance, God is saying that sin, it'll kill you spiritually. You'll go to hell. Don't do it. It's a problem. It's considered hate speech. I want to read one verse to kind of sum this up because, you know, we always use the scripture here to um, make our points. Isaiah 5.20, and most of you know this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Let me tell you something, folks. We're living in the days of Isaiah 5.20. Now, listen, I'm not trying, let's put it all in perspective. I'm not trying to scare you. I mean, I'm not scared. <laughs> if it happens, it happens. I'll deal with it accordingly. But if you don't think that we're fighting a spiritual battle, you're sleeping. You need to wake up. question is, what if one day our nation warns us completely to stop preaching the word of God and it becomes hate speech? What if one day our nation dictates to us what we can say in our churches as is common in many communist uh, countries and many uh, countries that are run by Sharia law. The result would be many people, I've said before, leaving Bible-believing churches for the sake of self-preservation. And there would be many pastors being imprisoned in the overseas churches, which is happening today. Next Sunday, we're going to see the disciples pray to God for boldness, to preach his word and not be afraid of offending. Because above all else, God calls us to be obedient. And this is what we can learn through the scripture, we, we learn obedience. We see what these men went through. We're going to see persecution get worse. We're going to see some of these guys lose their lives and women. And we're going to see how they reacted to this. Okay? And, and this is certainly our model for our lives today. Regardless of what happens, though, we need to put it all in perspective with one verse. John 16:33, And I'll read that. Just because we haven't seen heavy persecution here yet doesn't negate... Jesus' exhortation in John 16:33, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me, Jesus says, you will have peace. In the world you will have tri tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. You shouldn't get worse. We're going to see